0: Here on Youth Voices for Healthy Choices, we believe in people first language. This is one way that we can destigmatize the disease of obesity. For instance, instead of referring to someone as an obese person, we would talk about a person who has obesity, or a person with obesity, or even a person affected by obesity. As you can see in the example, we are no longer labeling an individual with their disease. Although the usage of people-first language is common in certain countries and cultures, it may not be used by everyone. Thank you. Welcome to Youth Voices for Healthy Choices, a new podcast from the World Obesity Federation where we shift the dialogue around childhood obesity and shine a light on some of the amazing youth activism that's happening all around the world. I'm your host, Faith Newsom. Today I'm going to be joined by Claudia Batts. I've had the honor of getting to know Claudia over the past year while we've been working on this podcast, and I'm excited for her to introduce herself to all of you. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Faith. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm so excited um, to be talking to you actually on the show and not just in the planning stages. So specifically, Claudia is the Policy and Projects Coordinator at the World Obesity Federation. So Claudia, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your work in that role and also some of your own personal background?
1: Of course, I'd be more than happy to. So at WAF, um, as you said, I work as a Policy and Projects Coordinator and particularly focusing on the childhood obesity space. We have two projects that we contribute to. They are focusing on policy actions that have the potential to sustainably reduce the prevalence of obesity amongst adolescents in Europe. I think what's particularly inspiring about these projects is that we get to work directly with young people and that motivates me on a daily basis but from a young age I've personally been very passionate about uh, childhood obesity given that I live with a chronic condition that does increase one's susceptibility to developing obesity over the life course but I've been very fortunate to now be able to contribute to this space.
0: So today, we'll specifically be talking about school-based interventions to address childhood obesity, um, which I think is a really interesting space because in some ways, schools are a great opportunity for pediatric obesity interventions. But on the other hand, um, COVID-19 especially has been highlighting disparities that we previously knew existed, and now they are even more persistent. So I'm excited to hear the interviews and the information that our experts are gonna be sharing with us.
1: Me too, I'm very excited. So let's go to Barbados where my colleague and friend Pierre Cook is located. Pierre has been working in the advocacy space since the age of 14 and it's super inspiring to see his work at both the national and international level leading on the conversation of how we can combat chronic diseases in the Caribbean. He is also a law student and the president of the National Youth Parliament in Barbados. I started by asking Pierre about the current situation in the Caribbean.
2: In the Caribbean, it's a very peculiar and interesting situation. So we have one of the highest rates of childhood obesity in the world, um, with about one in three children being overweight or obese. And I think in one island um, in particular, Um, one in four children are obese and that's a crazy statistic when you think about it Um, and I think it speaks a lot to the Caribbean culture I mean, Caribbean culture is eating big meals, uh, meals high in carbs, uh, you get your larger portion of rice and meat. Um, So it's not really about balancing diets and there isn't that very heavy focus on exercise. Um, So within that system or within that culture of eating these high carb diets, where we more have an appreciation that you know, babies should be big and chubby, you want a nice and chubby child, or, you know, he's a growing boy, so he should eat as much as he can until he reaches a certain age, because, you know, well, he's growing, he's going to burn it off, so he should eat as much as he can. Um, and with these perceptions about children, you know, um, you know, a child should be plump, and a child should look um, well-fed, You, we kind of tailor, or we kind of um, end up on the wrong side Of the health page and end up with children who are obese or overweight because our culture lends to this appreciation of children being larger. Um, And and that basically is where we end up, or how we end up where we are today, with one of the highest obesity rates in the world. And um, one of the things I think about, and this is universal, it's not only Caribbean. um, Grandmothers are precious commodities and precious gifts to mankind. And they are absolutely brilliant and wonderful. Um, And Grannies tend to let you know children get away with things their children probably didn't get away with when they were their age, um, and I think that it it speaks to us having this multi-sectoral and whole of community approach because when you're speaking to parents and when you're speaking to students and you're speaking to teachers, you have to speak to those caregiver caregivers, including grandmothers and nannies because the child goes over by granny for a couple of days or for an evening and she's like, oh you're a growing boy, I've got a bunch of candy to give you um, or I've got a bunch of sweets and snacks. Yeah. So, no, it's important to make sure that everyone is a part of that conversation um, and, and is educated on the topic. I just wanted to make that point.
1: No, I think that's really interesting and I can completely resonate with your point because I'm I come from a country, I come from Turkey and in Turkey, actually, there's a common norm that if For instance, when I would go and visit family, if you did not finish a plate of food that they put in front of you or your rice, they would say that it's going to cry behind your back. Um, And I think there's cultural, yeah, um, so that grain of rice will cry behind your back. So I think it's very um, important to remember that. I also think um, you allude to obviously physical activity. How is that integrated into the educational curriculum? Is it compulsory or...?
2: So um, I mean, at the moment we do have physical education, which is um, mandatory, Um, but the issue with that is, is as well it's provided, how is it enforced? And what is the physical education system like? So teachers or students almost think of physical education as being replaceable um, or something that you can miss out one week and use it to catch up on some other work. Um, Just when you're approaching that age of um, nine or 10, just before you have that major exam, Um, We have a lot of students who are um, barred from continuing physical activity, whether it's in extracurricular activities or within the primary school itself. So um, teachers are more like, you know, you really need to be focusing on this exam. It's coming up soon. So then we create this culture in students from an early age that, you know what, if you want to succeed academically, you may have to take up some of that physical activity that you engage in.
1: Are there any other sort of legislations or um, in schools that have been implemented to sort of regulate the environment?
2: Currently, we are in the process of advocating and demanding for an introduction of a comprehensive school food and nutrition policy. Um, And what this would allow is that within schools, there isn't that sale and advertising of unhealthy food and beverages. So there's a certain protocol about what foods can be allowed in and outside of schools because we do have vendors who position themselves just outside of the schools. COVID-19 has derailed some of this action because, you know, we had to Um, refocus some of the efforts into other things just to make sure that persons are protected at this moment but we are hoping that when things are settled we have this legislation put in place
1: I really commend that and I actually think you know COVID-19 has definitely limited our progress in some aspects but at the same time it's it's really elevated obesity in the global health agenda which I think I'm very um very hopeful about Can you tell me a bit more about the My Healthy Caribbean School Initiative? Because I really think our listeners would love to to learn more about it.
2: Yeah. So the My Healthy Caribbean School Initiative was an effort by the Healthy Caribbean Coalition to map and monitor what was happening within school environments across the region. So we did develop a survey of sorts where children rated how healthy or unhealthy did they think their school was and it really helped us to understand you know what children were thinking and i think from the results of it um at least while i was speaking to those persons who were conducting the surveys or doing the surveys at the time they would express you know it would be nice if we had just water it would be nice if we could have a healthier school environment and just those verbal accounts of what they would prefer we found that children actually do want a healthier school environment and a lot of time persons are like you know um children want to be able to have access to these foods, they're tasty, Um, they want to have them, we're doing this for the children. And and my response always is, you're doing what for the children? You're feeding them poison. I mean, how can you study, how can you focus? I always found it difficult to focus after my lunch break in high school because if I got lunch from the canteen, it was fries and chicken perhaps, and I would eat that and I would go into class and I feel so lethargic. I would literally sit in class and almost be ready to fall asleep. Yeah, It's not really conducive to learning when you put students within an environment where they have these fast foods and they're fatty, you know, obesogenic. Um, and I think within COVID-19, what it has done is shown the gaps in the system and shown very clearly What importance does the school play in terms of feeding and and providing nutrition for children? Because within the Caribbean, we do have a school meals program where children are provided with meals if um, their financial situation or the, the position of their family economically can't support that. And what we found is that with the lockdown, there was a disruption in that service. Um, which meant that children were essentially left without food, without lunch, or probably without nutritious meals. And I think COVID-19 has shown us the importance of making sure everyone has equitable access to healthy foods and knows how to prepare them.
1: Definitely. Um, do you have any thoughts on sort of how the um, sort of the pandemic will go on and sort of rising rates of childhood overweight and obesity in schools will also affect mental health and the stigma um, that comes with it as well?
2: Yeah. Um, Very, very important conversation about body image and mental health, because what happens is that students and children are encouraged to eat your growing boy, eat, put on the weight. Um, And then when they enter into secondary school or they get into those early teenage age um, years or pre-teenages, they tend to be a bit more conscious about their bodies. And I think that society, to some extent, is to blame for that because we encourage children to eat themselves into a situation where they're not very healthy or not the healthiest. And then we leave them at 14 15 in a situation where they have these body ideas that are not very healthy and if you feel very conscious about themselves so we lead them up to that situation where they're feeling uncomfortable and then we just leave them there and criticize them for it and victim blaming is something that i don't think should ever be done for any person who's developed a non-communicable disease because they are a product of their environment especially children um children don't make a lot of decisions for themselves in their formative stages Parents are responsible for that. Teachers are responsible for that. Governments are responsible for that. So you can't blame a child at 15 years old for being obese or being overweight.
1: Definitely. So we really need to ensure that there is access to healthy, nutritious food at a really affordable price. But then also shifting the blame away from children, because essentially they are not the primary decision makers, especially early on in life, but childhood obesity is definitely a key area for prevention of obesity further down the life course. Yep. So I think that um, it's a great sort of message to leave our audience with, but I was wondering if you have any, if you wanted to summarize one takeaway message, what would it be?
2: I think my takeaway message would be um, a call to governments, a call to civil society organization, a call for community members to demand a call to action for the introduction of strong comprehensive um, legislation to protect our children and we need to ensure that children have access to their rights and this is something that we can do Um, and the government has a responsibility to do we can push for it but the onus really is on the government to make sure our children are protected yeah
1: wow what a powerful note to end on and it's been a true pleasure getting to talk to pierre So now let's move on to India. Asta Chu is a research officer at Hirade, a nonprofit organization in India that work a lot in the childhood obesity space, doing both research and policy and advocacy. In this conversation, we'll be alluding to the double burden of malnutrition quite a lot. So just to define this, the double burden of malnutrition is essentially the coexistence of undernutrition and overnutrition within families, communities, and more broadly, populations. A mother for instance may have low height for their weight and be considered stunted but her children may be born overweight so now i'd like to welcome asa
3: hi claudia uh, so today we have conducted a program that was called kids uh, for diabetes prevention and that was uh, particularly focused on type 1 diabetes and in which the intervention was also for the kids to adopt a healthier lifestyle, I think schools actually uh, offer a platform for the students to learn uh, for their lifestyle and in that not only the kids, but also the parents and teachers play an important role where they can, uh, you know, motivate their kids to adopt healthier lifestyle. So through these methods, I think it's important that we also engage teachers and parents in such initiatives to not only engage kids, but also to propagate the agenda of promoting uh, nutrition at a community level.
1: Definitely. I completely, completely agree with your point. And actually at WAF, we compile policy dossiers and one of our policy dossiers um, that synthesizes all the evidence is on school-based interventions. And we, one of the systematic reviews that we looked at did highlight that school-based interventions with physical activity, diet components, and home element combined seem to be, you know, the most effective. And now kids are spending more time at home. Um, we're experiencing, of course, with um, the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of school closures are in place. So what do you think, you know, the effects of sort of these school closures and how do you think um, this will sort of affect nutrition?
3: That's actually very important and worth talking about at this moment. And uh, some of the programs that are run by the government, such as, uh, for example, the midday meals have been mostly affected by the cause of pandemic, where almost like 370 uh, million kids are not getting their, you know, subsidized food by the government, uh, which they get through these midday meals in the schools. So if that is affected, you know, the burden of undernutrition in India, is going to rise multiple times in the coming future. And that's, uh, uh, you know, greatly a matter of concern where more than 35% of the children in India are suffering from stunting and wasting already. And it has shown that, you know, uh, almost like 189 million kids suffer from the undernutrition uh, in 2017 to 19. So disruption of such services, uh, you know, might just lead to the burden, overburden of such uh, uh, conditions in India, which, uh, which this COVID will have a multifold effect on.
1: Do you have any insights or inputs on sort of what could be done perhaps to mitigate the effects of school closures?
2: Mm hmm.
3: I think one thing that we need to focus right now is uh, the mental health status of the children because uh, staying at home that has worsened the mental health effects of kids Uh, not only the adults, uh, you know, uh, across the world. And that is something to be focused upon where the kids are just uh, staying in isolation at their homes. There is no means of, uh, you know, having these physical activity. They're not going out to play games. They are not interacting with their peers and they're not... uh, you know, uh, going to school, so that is something should, uh, you know, there should be some integrated services which not only promote the, you know, the child uh, development or these uh, nutrition uh, address nutrition stated, but also address the mental health issues.
1: I completely agree, and this is actually a topic that I am very passionate about because, you know, we have to think indirectly, sort of, you know, with an over burden of sort of poor mental health that can also. Increased chances of snacking behaviors. Yeah, definitely something that I think needs to be considered post pandemic too.
3: Yeah, I think you rightly pointed out about the snacking behavior. So even the screen time, I think that has increased for kids staying at home. Uh, One more thing that I would like to point here is something regarding the education. So uh, most of the children who were underweight, their mothers were illiterate only 13% of women in India actually gain higher education. So, you know, the education, there have been more uh, dropouts from girls in schools because of the lack of sanitation facilities or other measures that are not present. So that actually kind of build upon uh, the burden of such issues in the future, when the mother is not educated to educate their kids regarding such uh, nutrition values or such issues, you know, we are leading to a country where there is no way to address such issues for a long term. So education plays a very important role uh, where we can promote not only nutrition, but other healthy lifestyle behavior for a very long term.
1: It was great talking to Asta and hearing about the regional challenges being faced in India at the moment regarding childhood obesity. But it's important to highlight that these are also applicable all around the world. I really think that we need to see wider community level interventions that really focus on training parents so that they can go on and convey that information to their kids. So let's now travel to Europe, somewhere not too far from my hometown here in the UK. I talked to Sarah Chernin, a medical doctor by education. She is currently studying her masters of public health at the medical university of Vienna, and is also a research assistant at the Austrian academic Institute for clinical nutrition. So here she is. Hi, Sarah, how are you today? It's wonderful to have you on board for our podcast. I'd love to hear a bit about some of the research that you've done, if you have any insights from your research projects.
4: Yeah, so um, at the Austrian Academic Institute for Clinical Nutrition, we have done for some years now an obesity prevention program in a Viennese primary school. So the children are aged 8 to 11. We do have an intervention group and a control group. Then the intervention itself consists of a nutritional education So we go into the school and they have extra lessons about nutritional contents of foods. And we also have classes for food preparation. So we prepare fresh lunch and breakfast with the children. And then they also have extra physical activity lessons that is carried out by sports students. What we've seen from our project is that we can change the nutritional knowledge of the children. And we can also improve their physical performance. But what is very, very difficult is to really change their nutritional behavior. What the evidence says is that it's best to have a multi component intervention, which is um, consisting of a dietary intervention, a physical activity intervention, and also the inclusion of a home component. And for us in our project, that's very difficult because this primary school is located in an area in Vienna where there is lots of migration backgrounds and many of the parents do not speak German very well. And yeah, what I can say from my experience is that if the prevention intervention only takes place at the school and if it's not possible to go outside the school, then the effects are quite limited. How about
1: at schools, canteens? I'd be interested to hear more about if you have any insights into the types of foods that are available to children, if there's any sort of regulations on the marketing and availability of sugar-sweetened beverages at schools. Personally, when I was going to school in the UK here, um, I remember going to the canteen and all you can see is those, you know, cereal bars and crisps and chocolates and there's sort of that peer-to-peer pressure um, that you have to buy something during a and the school day breaks?
4: Yeah, actually, I think in Austria, we have the same problems. We have the system here that um, within the schools, there are small shops, they're called buffets, and they are privately owned. So the owners actually can sell whatever they want. So I would really like um, some national guidelines for the quality of food and the restriction of sales of junk food and sugar-sweetened beverages. No,
1: I agree completely. And I think um, it's, you know, it's, it's hard without sort of national guidelines that are universal sort of for, and that gold standard for like public and private schools as well, um, to sort of see those changes. And it's good that there's a lot of sort of individual private um, initiatives and schemes in place, but definitely um, I think we do need to have that level of sort of a higher higher level approach. Um, how have COVID-related school closures affected Sort of nutrition and health of school children in your in your opinion
4: well what we've seen is that when the children um, fall out of their school structure and they are on home confinement then we could observe that they increase food intake in general they eat more snacks and sweets what we also um know is that about one third of the total daily energy intake students get from schools, some of them even more, and for some children the meals at the school are the only meal they get per day. So I think therefore it's utterly important to stick to nutritional guidelines when it comes to school meals and the school feeding programs. I think what's of very high importance um all around the world is that schools and with the support of governments maybe um, continue to ensure access to healthy foods for the vulnerable children. So they should try to keep up feeding programs and nutritional services and maybe even scale up when needed because more children will be in need. What is um, I think a good opportunity during school closures is if teachers would include into their remote teaching maybe topics like healthy food choices and meal preparation. So I think we should definitely encourage children and people to go outside for physical activity and also for meeting with friends whilst, of course, keeping the distance. Because in some countries, um, yes, I think the children were just not allowed to leave the apartment and that put especially huge burden on children from families, from lower socioeconomic background, um, who live in small apartments in urban areas. So that would be my wish in in the case of a hopefully not future lockdown. Exactly. Thank
1: you so much, Sarah, for your, your insights and your time today. It was wonderful speaking to you. I look forward to um, future conversations and thank you again. It was great speaking to Sarah. I think one thing that really stuck with me was when she talked about the the fact that a lot of, in school environments, a lot of the canteens are privately owned and there's no national
0: guidelines.
1: So we really, really need to um, encourage cohesive policy actions to address this.
0: Yeah, we just learned a lot from amazing human beings doing great work in this space. So I think now's a good time for us to unpack um, our thoughts on the information that we just learned with the audience. So um, you mentioned this idea of cohesive policy, which makes me think of um, issues of access so we can teach things in school but then we also have to acknowledge that there are health disparities based on race based on socioeconomic status that impact these kids when they're at home and when they're out in the world um, and we need to tailor our education and understand the communities that we're working with in schools, because every school is going to end up being different as well. There's going to be school interventions um, for more affluent communities that maybe assume more access to um, resources, but there's also going to be areas where the built environment lacks a lot of resources, and that impacts kids when they end up going home. Definitely. I think one key point that came out of my conversations with,
1: um, with Asa and Sarah, for instance, was that actually... The, when you it's the need to involve parents and to really um, the role that they play as well in encouraging both physical activity and um, out of school, but also, you know, kids, despite spending a lot of time at school, when they go home, it's their parents that are giving them their, their dinners and their meals. And they need, if their parents are financially constrained and amidst the pandemic, we're seeing this more and more then they're not going to be able to to offer them healthy healthy food choices and are more likely to be consuming ultra-processed foods.
0: Yeah, and there's probably a lot of opportunity there for education on grocery shopping on a budget or a lot of ways that this information can also be tailored to parents um, because... Claudia and I are both people who experience this on a personal level, but also professional level. So we have a lot of information and it's hard sometimes to remember that the general public doesn't know um, all this information and school-based interventions are a great way to get that information to a lot of people, um, both children and their families. I
1: agree and I think we really need to make sure that schools have nutrition built in their curriculums because at the moment we don't really. See that, and I think it's easier more than more than ever now, perhaps virtually, to you know um, encourage physical activity both um, at school and at home.
0: Yeah, I think schools are a great place for that education revolving around diet and physical activity. Um, but one other issue that I think needs to be addressed during these interventions is the idea of stigma. And that comes from a place of personal experience. Um, I'll tell a short story. Whenever I was in elementary school, we used to have these days called field days. And we would spend the whole day outside on the soccer field playing all of these outdoor games. And it was a day all about physical activity. Um, but every time I got assigned to someone's team, all the kids would groan and complain um, because I was a child living with obesity and they thought that I was going to lose the game for them.
1: Yeah, I think your your story is really powerful. And I can, I can really resonate with some of the, the stories that you're telling. Here in the UK at schools, we had roughly like an hour of physical activity per day incorporated into our into our week. And we played a lot of ball sports, netball, but I was never sort of really good at that being someone who's quite short as well, I think, which really, <laughs> um, yeah, really discouraged me. And I felt that that peer pressure, which I I feel really in the long term, if you want to sustain a habit, you have to feel empowered and you have to feel, you know, I think that community cohesiveness is really key.
0: Yeah, and I think those experiences, like the ones that we shared, I mean, that, Discouraged me from participating in physical activity, at least in with other kids, which is a big part of you know like organized sports. So I would do things on my own, and then at school, it got to the point where I would even ask to skip recess and say, "Can I read a book?" Um, so I was even missing out on the hour that <laughs> you know they schedule in for physical activity. So we just need to make sure that schools are a safe and comfortable place, um, especially for children with obesity, to be exploring these healthy habits. Um, One thing that really sticks with me is the idea that schools do have a lot of potential. I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of different places where interventions can come in handy, and schools is a great place to reach a large group of people that can be impacted by this information.
1: I completely agree, and I'd like to to end on a positive note and just say that I think the, the virtual nature of the way that we're living and working now and homeschooling, it actually, we can use it to our advantage
0: yeah so claudia thank you for sharing your thoughts and your experiences um i really like that we were able to end on a bright and hopeful future note um speaking of if you're interested in contributing to a brighter future and acting on some of the topics that we discussed today um, don't worry we will have a long list of resources for you in the show notes If you liked what you heard today, please go ahead and hit subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. And if you care about some of the topics we discussed today, it would really help us to get the word out if you rate our show. Since we're a new show, the more ratings we get, the more people will see that we exist. We really appreciate your support. This show is made in association with the World OBC Federation. It was produced by Marina Poole with direction by Rachel Thompson. It was hosted by me, Faith Newsom, along with reporters Louisa Mirza and Claudia Batts. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. See you next time.